Okay. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Um, just so you know, one housekeeping thing is we are going to stream this. We're going to put it online. A lot of people have asked because they're out of town or whatnot. So it will be streamed online and we'll make it um, where it's podcasted as well on the website. So if you want to listen to it, we're going to catalog these things. So the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, it is a short book, but it is a compact book. We are going to go verse by verse through this. I don't know how far we're going to make it tonight, but I'm going to respect your time. So at 730, my alarm clock will go off and I will stop. So wherever we stop, we stop and we will pick up. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this the Magna Carta of the Reformation. He said it's the most important book in the entire Bible. If you want to summarize the book of Galatians, it is basically the book of Romans in, in, in a short form, all right? I'm going to read the first chapter, and then we're going to walk through it. So if you have a Bible, grab it, meet me there. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave him for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what's astonishing there, and I'm going to go through this in a little bit, but Paul, in all of his writings, starts with a greeting, a specific greeting, and then he goes directly into a prayer. If you actually look at the form of this, and I'll walk through it in just a second, he actually does not do that. In the book of Galatians, he's a bit angry. Uh, you're going to see that. He skips the formal greeting, and he goes right to what you call a doxology, where he goes right into verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, he walks directly into this because he's got work to do. He's got work to do. What you're going to find is the book of Galatians is actually a, quite a stern letter. It's different than every other letter. Matter of fact, no other letter that Paul writes starts like this. Here's what he says in verse 6. I'm astonished. That's strong language we'll come back to. That you are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you who trouble, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor 
did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with them 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. You know, I used to love going to New York City with Allison. Uh, my wife loves the Met. Um, I'm not a big fan of art, but I love watching her love art. And we would walk around, and she would stare at a picture, and she would talk about how a picture speaks a million words. You, you could see in her eyes how she gets lost in this picture, and, and it begins to formulate in her these ideas of what's going on. And she could go there for days after days after days. What Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 1 is he's saying that his life is proof of his transformation. He's saying, he's basically saying that my life is a picture that speaks a million words, that these people, what you have to understand, what's going on in the book of Galatia, that there's a problem, this group called the Judaizers has come into this region of Galatia. Judaizers, if you want to know their background, they, they were people who claimed to be Christians, but they came from a Jewish background, and they were very legalistic. What, what they believed was, if you wanted to follow Jesus, or if you wanted to follow God, you had to you had to give yourself to Jesus, but then you also had to keep the Mosaic law. Their vehicle by which you were saved was through Judaism. So, so they would tell you you had to keep the law and the festivals of Judaism. Specifically, and Paul's going to get into this, you had to keep the, the significant sign of Judaism, which was circumcision. So, so this physical sign you had to bear, and again, I'm going to go into this, but there, there's something in Acts chapter 15 called the, um, the Jerusalem Council, where the church in Jerusalem convened over this very issue of circumcision, circumcision or the law in general, where they came together and they asked the question, the most important question, if you become a Christ follower, do you have to keep the Mosaic law? Do you know what they said? No. But these Judaizers, they came in to antagonize Paul and to question his theology in order to bring the church back to what they thought it should be. Now, Galatia. Galatia is a, re a region in what we call Asia Minor. Okay, Asia Minor, if you had a map, is modern-day Turkey. So if you're traveling around the world, modern-day Turkey, Paul visited Galatia on his first and second missionary journeys through the book of Acts. So think about the first 15 chapters. If you want to think about some major cities in Asia Minor, think about Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Derby is where Timothy was from. These are all regions in Asia Minor where the, the, the region of Galatia would have been from. Contrary to what most people think, Galatia wasn't a city, it was a region. This is why you're going to see in, chapter, or in verse 2 where he calls it the churches in Galatia. He's writing to a region of churches. Now, Galatia, which you also have to understand, it was a Roman colony under Roman law. That, that means that these were Gentile background believers. So they didn't come from a Jewish background. If you, if you know anything about what, the way things worked, you had Hellenist or Hellenistic people, which came from a, a 
um, Greek background, and then you had, you had your traditional Jewish people that came from a Jewish background. So these Roman colonies would have been more Hellenistic or, or then more Greek. They, they would have been Gentiles. So they wouldn't have come from a Jewish background. So as Paul, Paul felt like his calling was, and you're going to see this flush out in the book of Galatians, was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul specifically went to Asia Minor, a Roman colony, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is why Paul was so angry. Paul was angry because he took this pure gospel to these people, and these people had started coming to faith, and then these Judaizers started walking in and mixing the gospel by adding to what Paul had said. Now, here's what you need to understand. The gospel plus anything is religion, and religion is damning. Paul's going to actually call this an anathema. He says, let them be accursed. Like, if you can say it in the most strong language, Paul would say, if you add anything to the gospel, listen, you should go to hell. That's, that's the language that Paul uses. I mean, literally, in the original language, that's what he says. Let any of you who adds anything to this gospel message go to hell. Why? Or, or actually, if you really want to talk about the wording, he says, to, the hell with, to hell with you, is basically what it says. Why? Well, because if you add anything to the gospel, you take away the gospel. And people's lives are on the line. So here's the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it. What they were doing was adding to the gospel. And that is the central problem of the book of Galatians. These Judaizers were trying to get the church to turn against Paul. And honestly, they were trying to get the church to turn against the gospel. They were what we would call parasites. See, they needed Paul to build the church so that they could look at Paul and be critical of Paul and tear the thing down. Y'all, this happens in the church today too. What you get is you get a bunch of people, if you're not careful, that are religious and they walk into a church and they, they, they cling on to it, that's something that's growing, and then they tear it down from the inside with religion. This is why I say this all the time. If you really read the Bible correctly, what you'll find is the greatest threat to the church is the church. So let me give you a couple of passages that you can mark down and I'll read them and that, that show exactly what the problem is. So Galatians chapter three, verses one through five. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh or the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? You hear it? Or by hearing with faith. How about this one? Chapter 4, verse 8. So what he says here, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn again to this weak and worthless elementary principles of the world who, ins who slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. All right, how about chapter 5, verse 1 through 6? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, again, that is another way of saying the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await I eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You, you see it? This is the central theme of the book of Galatians. Again, it is a mini book of Romans. If you really want to think about it, it is the idea is justification by faith. It, that is the doctrinal statement that Paul is going to drive home through the entire book. The word law is mentioned 32 times in the book, and the word faith appears 23 times in the book. The central idea of the book that Paul is writing is contrasting the idea of living by law and living by faith. If you live by faith, you'll be saved. If you live by religion and the law, you will not. Let me give you this really quickly. You can divide the book of Galatians up into three easy sections. The first two chapters are all personal. Paul is going to make his personal appeal to his apostleship, and he's going to do that by showing you his very life. Chapters three and four are all doctrinal. It's all going to be doctrine. Chapters three, chapter 3 might be one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. Chapters 5 and 6 are all practical. This is what your doctrine should lead to. He wants you to see that the doctrine of grace should lead to good works. Okay, If you get faith, it should change the way you live. That's the point. The quickest route to spiritual maturity is the doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ. Paul writes in a form all through his books called the indicative imperatives. I'm going to give you a little background, and then we're going to jump in right here. Chapters 3 and 4 are indicatives. They're all doctrine. Here's what you need to know. Chapters 5 and 6 are all imperatives. Here's what you should do. Anytime you write, read anything that Paul writes in the Bible, it's really simple and it's really clear. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Paul writes systematically in both of those ways, okay? With that overview of the book of Galatians, let's jump into verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, Paul, again, is defending his apostleship. This is different from any other book. Okay, in verse 1, it, 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 he mentions the resurrection of the dead um, and, and this idea of him being an apostle. An apostle was one that was set apart and authoritatively could speak the word of God. So, in general, everybody who's sent by somebody is considered an apostle. Who is Paul an apostle of? God. Paul wants you to know right from the start that he is sent by God. That's a really important statement. Paul is making the claim that he is sent by God, which means that he speaks authority, authoritatively on behalf of God. Paul is saying that he is called by God, he is set apart by God, and that he is different from every other person. He, he's saying this. He's saying that he is like the other 12 apostles. In, in the same category, he is one who is able to speak Scripture. Okay, when Paul or any of the other apostles call themselves apostles, he is telling you that he has the authority that when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of God authoritatively, meaning that these are the very words of God. The way I explain it to people is, if I were to write a book, but the way that I wrote it 
was to tell Jim what to write, and Jim wrote it down for me. Even though Jim wrote down the words, I'm the author of the book. The way you have to think about an apostle is, even though Paul wrote down the words, God is the author of the book. That's what he wants you. God speaks through man. Paul mentions the resurrection here to make the point that the kingdom of God has already started. Notice that. Notice that he says something about the resurrection. He's not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Again, this is a, a, a greeting that he doesn't use in any other book, but it's because he wants to show you that God's kingdom has started. How do we know that? Well, he's speaking to Jews. One thing you need to know about the Jewish religion is all Jews, well, all Jews outside of the Sadducees actually believe that there is a resurrection from the dead, but no Jew believes that the resurrection of the dead happens in the middle of history. They believe that it only happens at the end of time. So for Jesus to raise from the dead in the middle of history was a big deal, was a very big deal. So when Paul says this, he's telling them that he has inaugurated or he has started the new kingdom and that salvation history has started. Paul is trying to reset the framework to show them that there is a new way of living in response to a new kingdom that came with the resurrection. You no longer had to go to the old covenant. There's a new one. Verse 2, and to all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Again, this is not one city. Paul is writing to a region of churches in Asia Minor. Matter of fact, we would actually say it's probably the southern region of Galatia that happened on his very first missionary journey. So if you go to the book of Acts, which we're going to study this year, Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and the church sets them apart and tells them that they can go on and take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is where Paul goes to Galatia. Paul writes this book later, but this is where Paul goes, is Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, where he goes to Lystra, he goes to Derbe, and he goes to all these other cities. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, listen to this. This is a super important theme of the book. Paul is combating a false gospel, and the way he does it is to tell them the true gospel. You got to understand this, and and I I need you to hear this. The way that you combat anything that's false is not necessarily by telling people they're false. Point them to the real thing. Why? What's the real thing? Grace. He starts there on purpose. As a side note, I always wanted to name our daughter Karis, um, but my pastor in North Carolina took that name, so it was just weird. Karis is the Greek word for grace. So we just named her Grace. It's Addison Grace. Grace. Grace is God giving you what you didn't deserve. That's the gospel message. Peace. Shalom. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Peace. It's all-encompassing peace. It's the type of peace that the gospel brings. This, it's the, the type of peace that God can deliver you from this present evil age. I, I think it's really important that Paul starts this letter off with grace and peace. Those are the two, two staples of the gospel. If you remember Jeremiah 29, city church, seek the peace of the city. This is God's plan. Seek the shalom of the city that I've sent you, he tells them in Jeremiah 29. Peace, all-encompassing peace. Paul is going to make the case that the cross of Christ is the only way, the only way to be set free, not by works, 
but by grace. See, when Paul, when Paul says that Jesus made a way to deliver us from this present evil age, he's making a connection to the resurrection, that the resurrection started a new age, this present evil age, the one that we are currently in, well, something new started. It started right here. It's not your works. And again, I think this is really important because if we live where we live in the cultural South, you can fall into the trap of religion. The trap of the fact that you think that God is going to accept you based off your good works. Unfortunately, if you actually read the Bible, your good works, as Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. I know we're all adults in here, but he actually uses the word minstrel rags to explain what your good works look like in front of a holy God. They're not going to get you to heaven. What will get you to heaven is grace and peace. Verse 3 is super important because it bookends the book of Galatians, actually. If you actually look at chapter 6, verse 15, listen to what he says. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor circumcision, but a new creation. See that? This present evil age is going to fall into the trap, but if you actually go to the very end of the book, he's going to show you what changes everything, and it's a new creation. What is a new creation? It's the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Paul wants you to see that the thing that changes everything is the resurrection. Verse 4 is actually connected to verse 3 who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Again, you got to understand this. All of this is according to God. It's according to the will of God. But how are we delivered from sins? I'm pushing through on this because if you're going to get the book of Galatians, you have to get this. The, how are you delivered from sin? Well, actually, you're delivered from sins because Jesus rescued you by the resurrection. And that was the will of God, not your good works. Your good works actually come out of that. You see, the entire salvation history is through grace. It's through grace that creates peace. And all of that, if you connect the dots, is the same person, watch this, this is the theme, that appointed Paul. So if the salvation history, if the new creation is by the will of God, if you actually go back up to verse 1, you see that Paul is not an apostle, not by men, nor by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's showing you that his apostleship is actually rooted in the same God who called Jesus to die for your sins. The same God that gave an act of grace is the same God that called Paul, and that's the same God who started the church of Galatia. What he wants them to see is his authority his apostleship, his gospel message is from God. It's not on his own. You're going to have to hold on to that because it's an important theme through the first two chapters of the book. Then he gets really, really angry. I'm astounded, he says. This is very strong language. It's a, it's a strict rebuke. It's different than any other book that Paul writes. He starts normally with an opening prayer. This one, he starts with a rebuke. I'm astounded that you so quickly are deserting him who called you. That calling is a really important theme that's going to happen. But what did he call you to? Notice it, circle it, in grace. It's the same theme. 
and grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some of you who are trouble, or there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'm astounded. Notice the forcefulness of that language. He's actually really amazed. Like, it's an astonishment. It's an amazement. It's, I cannot believe you're already walking away from the gospel. I can't believe you're so quickly deserting the gospel. It's a present tense, and it's a present tense here in the Greek language. You're not only deserted the gospel, you're continuing to desert the gospel by your acts of works. I, again, I think that there's a, a quick warning here for all of us, is if you hear the gospel and you receive the gospel and you revert back to living a life of works, Paul would say, I'm astounded that you would so quickly go back to the slavery that God freed you from. The rebuke there is, I'm astounded that you would hear the gospel, you would see that God saved you, that he died in your place and you're going back. You know how we do this? We tend to do this because we feel ashamed when we sin. Not, not, we don't feel conviction of sin. You know there's a difference there. Shame means I'm hiding from God from my sin because, because I don't think that he could ever love me again. I love this. If you've never read the book, um, oh, what, what's the name of the book? Clayton, help me out. Um, um, Gentle and Lowly. He has this revolutionary idea that when you are at your worst, that's when God draws closest to you. He doesn't pull away from you. You know you are caught in a religious trap when you're at your worst and you think God is ashamed of you. That actually tells you you might not understand the gospel. Because the gospel is that when Jesus sees you, he doesn't see your filthy rags, nor does he see your good works. He sees his righteousness in you. And that's the power actually to change. He's astounded. See, when we hear the grace of the gospel and we go back to guilt and works righteousness, God is astounded. Now, it is an affront to God when you go back to religion, both functionally and and when you do it to other people. When, when When you expect people to live a certain way, when you call people to something different, and you do it not out of grace, but out of obligation. You don't live this way. You can't be a Christian. Listen to what Paul said. I'm astounded that you're going back. See, God, the Father, called them to continue in the grace of Christ. He didn't just appoint Paul. He didn't just raise Christ from the dead. He has called you to continue in this present age in the grace of Christ. That, that's, the, that's the application. In this present age, the one you currently live in, the same God who called Paul, the same God who raised Christ from the dead, is the same God is calling you to continue in the gospel. You know, we say this a lot. I, I took this from Tim Keller. The gospel is not the diving board off into Christianity. It's the pool that you go deeper into. You never graduate from the gospel. The moment you graduate from the gospel is the moment that you forget the gospel. Because grace of Christ is the key. See, they're turning away from the grace of Christ, and they're turning back to the law of God. Listen, 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 listen. It's the number one danger for Christians in the South. As you begin to add to the laws of God, 
and you put them on other people and it becomes a burden that's not theirs to carry. When you expect things of them, grace changes your actions. Actions do not provide you a place for grace. It's different. The gospel says you're already accepted, therefore you do. Religion says do a bunch of stuff and maybe God will accept you. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Again, adding anything, from the, adding anything to the gospel takes the gospel away. It takes it away completely. And then these Judaizers, what they were doing is they were creating another gospel, which isn't a gospel at all. When you add things to the gospel, you take away the gospel. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 8. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, let him be accursed. That, that word accursed, again, it, 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 it mean, it's an anathema. He, he's saying, literally, and I, and I don't want to like be offensive here, but he's saying, to hell with you. If you do this, it's so harsh He's literally calling down a curse on you because he loves people that much. It doesn't matter if an angel or Tim Keller or me preaches another gospel to you. Let him be accursed. Now, now I need you to hear me say this. That, that word is strong, but angels do this. You get this, right? Think about Mormonism. The angel Moroni. That's an angel. Is he real? Is he fake? I don't know. But you know what I do know? He's preaching another gospel. And he's leading people away from Jesus. Let him be accursed. That's the language that Paul uses. It doesn't really matter who you are. Nobody is exempt from this. Satan, Lucifer, uh, you, you take his demon angels, anybody. What Paul wants you to see is it doesn't really matter. The point is don't believe anyone, even an angel. If an angel shows up to you and he contradicts the gospel, guess what you need to go with? The gospel. All right? That's Paul's point. These Judaizers did something even more complicated than, than a false religion. You know what they did? They took a real religion and tweaked it, which is so dangerous. Don't do that. It's like the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel. You know they're both just as sinful, right? They're distortions of the real thing. The gospel, listen to this, it's in verse 9, is received, not achieved. The gospel is received, not achieved. See it? As we have said before, so we say now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received... Let him be accursed. You don't, you don't get the gospel. It's given to you. Okay? It's received, not achieved. Verse 10. For am, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Well, obviously, Paul, you're not speak, seeking the approval of man talking like that, right? Or am I trying to please man? Nope. You're telling them all they're going to hell. If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That word servant, it's the word doulos. It literally means slave to Christ. He has given himself over. He's not trying to please people with his theology. You know, if I could just get on the Twitter world for a second and be like, guys, stop trying to acquiesce to culture to please people. 
Do you know what happens when the church gets married to culture? It becomes culture. You know what happens when the church gets married to politics? It gives birth to a nasty-looking son called politics. Do you know what the easiest way to grow a church is? Give birth to politics or culture in the short run. In the long run, you lose the gospel. See, this is what's at stake here. Servants, slaves, deliver the master's message and nothing else. That's what Paul said. Matter of fact, he's going to tell you you're a slave to Christ. You know what your job is? Your job is to do what the master tells you to do. That's what Paul's saying. There's a parallel here. In 5.11, he's going to say, I'll show it to you if you want to go and mark references, chapter 5, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision or the law, why am I still being persecuted? Makes sense, right? If I get up on stage every single Sunday and just tell you exactly what you want to hear, nobody's going to be upset. If everybody likes me, I'm probably not doing something right. I can tell you, matter of fact, my wife could probably tell you, not everybody likes me. (laughs) They tell us all the time. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You know, I say this a lot. Another one of our plumb lines that we say around here is the gospel's offensive. It is. Can I tell you, if you agree, or if your God agrees with everything that you say, you're probably not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're probably worshiping a form of yourself. There are things in the Bible you're not going to agree with. There are things in the Bible you're not going to understand. There are things in the Bible I don't understand and I don't agree with. You know, I struggle with the conquest of the book of Joshua. I just don't understand it. I struggle with the fact that God doesn't openly rebuke the polygamy of the Old Testament. Now, here's what I'll tell you on that. It never turned out well for anybody in the Old Testament that actually had a polygamous relationship. If you actually look, God tells them one man, one woman for a lifetime, and then they disobey it, and then it's terrible outcomes for every single one of them. It never ends well. So it is a silent rebuke, just so you know. It's not like God affirmed it. They, they walked down a lifestyle of sin, and guess what happened? Their lives in the nation was ruined because of it. But I struggle with it. But you know, the reality is, is just like my five-year-old son cannot understand the, the decisions that I make, maybe, just maybe, there's reasons that God does what he does that you won't understand, nor will you agree with. But you got to understand that your father always does what's best for you, even if you don't get it. The way you know that you are serving Christ and not people is if people get mad at the work that you do when you serve Christ, because they will. They will. Trust me. (laughs) I've had people tell me that we're too woke, and I've had people tell me that we don't talk enough about racial issues. I've had people tell me that we should openly rebuke certain things and that we should lighten on our stance on homosexuality. I've had people hit me from both sides. Why did you do this with COVID? Why don't you support politics openly? The reality is, guys, it's because we just teach the Bible. And when you teach the Bible, people are always going to be upset about something. You're going to say too much of something or not enough of something. Let me just tell you, the gospel does not fit into a Republican paradigm, nor does it fit into a Democratic paradigm. It doesn't fit into American culture. It doesn't fit neatly into the box. 
the gospel rebukes both sides, and it affirms both sides. There's good on both. And if you're going to teach the gospel, people are going to be mad at you. Who are you a servant of? You a servant of Christ, or are you a servant of people? That's the question. Verse 11. For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it. That's an important word again. It's received. You're going to see this theme a lot. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. You see it again? Watch this. Through revelation. Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the thesis statement of Paul's argument for why the gospel he has is not a false gospel. That statement in verse 11 and 12 is his thesis statement, and the proof of his gospel is being by revelation, that that his life was radically transformed by the gospel when God revealed, that's revelation, revealed his son to him. Remember Acts chapter 8, the Damascus road? Paul, a young, zealous Christian going to persecute the church, is radically transformed by the gospel. Remember I told you, a picture speaks a thousand words. Paul is telling you that his radically transformed life speaks the truthfulness of the gospel. How can you be on the council of the Sanhedrin, which is like going to an Ivy League school, think like Georgia Southern, the Harvard of the South, and you sit on this council and you get a letter from the high priest that tells you that you can literally go kill Christians. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed, stoned, after he delivers the gospel, and Paul is the one holding the cloaks of the people doing it, which means Paul was like a government worker. He watched everybody else do the work. Well, he affirmed it. Man, y'all are a rough crowd. There's like no laughing at all. Paul was climbing the corporate ladder of success on the traditions of man. Paul's going to say that in just a second. What I find fascinating about that is Jesus would say, you've abandoned the word of God for the traditions of man. Paul, that's who he was, climbing the gospel of success. And his proof that he's not pushing an agenda is his life. Because if Paul wanted to be popular, he'd have just kept doing what he was doing. He was already pretty popular. If Paul wanted to be liked, he would have kept doing what he was doing. And yet, this man named Saul is radically transformed by Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he goes from being the persecutor of the church to the protector of the church. So much so that the disciples didn't even trust him. You're going to find out it was years before he met the the other disciples. Years. About 15 years to be exact. Y'all, this man was dangerous. Dangerous. And he was radically transformed by the gospel. The truth of the gospel is what's on trial, and Paul's answer is his life. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That That word for in ESV is the word gar in Greek, which means now. Now I would have you know, it's a conjunction that Paul is referencing here, showing that what he is about to show you proves the point that the gospel is preached is the true gospel. 
Most likely that gar, that four there, actually goes back to verse 8, where he says, let me, let me tell you that if anybody else is preaching a different gospel, even if it's an angel, what he's saying is, now I'd have you know that I actually did preach the gospel and it wasn't a different gospel. How do you know that? Look at my life. Look at my life. Revelation in verse 12, it actually, it's deeper than just God revealed it. It goes back to the resurrection. What you're going to find is it's actually an eschatological reality showing them that the entire scope of history, of all history, this present age to a new creation that bookends the book of Galatians is the revelation that God has inaugurated a new kingdom. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life of Judaism. They had heard it. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it from persecutor to apostle. How does that happen? How does that happen? Can I tell you that there's nobody in this world that's too far gone for Jesus? Nobody? Do you know I have to be reminded of that often? Because if you have categories of people, there's got to be that guy in there. For me, it's my dad. Oftentimes I wonder. And then I look at the Apostle Paul and I think about that. There's nobody too far gone for Jesus. You know who the other person that comes to my mind is? Me. Most of my life, I just thought, there's no way that God could love somebody like me. After, after what I've done, after who I was, after where I came from, and yet, it's not because of anything you've done. And listen, I'm still a work in progress. Again, you can ask that lady in the back. Paul's going to make the claim, and this is what you need to know, that God was working in his life from the very beginning. He's been working in your life that way too. Even while he was persecuting the church, you notice it? Look at verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born. Paul's not, our God's not surprised by the things that you've done. By the trash that you carry. He's not surprised by that. He's been working in your life since even before you were born. He's been shaping the arc of your life. Verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Can you just let that sit there for a second? The grace that God has for you. He's pleased to reveal his son to you. He's not ashamed of you because it's all by grace. This is what Paul wants you to see. It's by grace. What's fascinating, and I don't have time to get into this, but in Greek, it's, it's in the subordinate clause, which he's actually telling you is that everything that has happened to him is happening to you too. It's a forceful language. That's what he's telling the church in Galatia. The same God that called me is the same God that's calling you. He's the same God that's been working in your life from the very beginning, and he's continuing to work in your life, and he's not ashamed by you. Saying, church, you have been zealous for God, and that is a good thing. But don't get so zealous that you start to believe a false gospel. City Church, I think it's a good warning for us. You have been zealous for God. Don't forget the mission. Let me just tell you, I hear it all the time from people. I do, and sometimes it's frustrating, sometimes it's upsetting, sometimes it's disappointing. But sometimes I hear things like, you know, when new people come into our church, 
it changes things and I lose my community or when we multiply small groups or all you care about is growing the church. That's not true. What I care about is that people, everybody gets to hear this gospel. The same gospel that saved me, I care that people get it. Because what I know is that it will radically transform your life. I want everybody in this city, everybody in this world, I want Revelation 7 to come true. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I want you to be as excited and passionate about that as I am. And you know what? That takes sacrifice, and it's difficult. But I never want you to forget that you, you were that somebody at one time. That somebody made room for you. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into this religious trap that says, what I have is good enough and nobody else needs it. I want you to be zealous for the gospel. There's a literary structure called a chiastic structure, which means that it bookends or frames things. Here's what Paul's doing. I'm going to show it to you really quickly. He says, my gospel is not man's gospel. It came through revelation. That's, that's A. And then B is it came through revelation. B, again, is when God revealed his son to me. And then he says, and I did not consult with any humans. He's actually building this structure to show you that none of this is from him. It's all from God. It's all from God. What's, what's amazing is uh, and when you read the Bible in its original language, which I know that that can sound rather arrogant, and I don't mean it that way, but so much gets unlocked because they use literary, they use literary structures, poetry, they use forceful language. It's really, really cool to watch what Paul is doing here. Verse 13, I'm going to speed up because I know we got to finish, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect your time and be done on time. Verse 13, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. My former life in Judaism. Paul's no longer living in Judaism. You see, he left his zealous life of works righteousness behind to proclaim the gospel that was revealed to him. Again, I want to be applicable here. In order to get the gospel, you have to leave something behind. And that, that's what, you, what Paul is saying is that I was violently destroying the church because I was ignorant of the gospel. But now that I have the gospel, I'm not doing that anymore, nor should you be. Nor should you be. Notice this, Paul wasn't destroying the church because, because he, um, I lost my train of thought. We're going to just move on. Verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul wasn't zealous for Jesus. He was zealous for the traditions of his father. Again, you remember Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees. And it's such a gentle rebuke. Oh, that you would abandon the word of God for the traditions of man. You know, that's what it looks like, most likely, in many of our lives. Most of us don't abandon the gospel. We add things to it. And that's what the Pharisees did. You see, Tim Keller, again, I, I love this. He says, don't be a Pharisee to the Pharisees. We, we tend to do the same thing. We tend, we tend not to appreciate who they are. They were trying to build hedges around the gospel because they loved it so much that they didn't want to destroy it, and all the while, they destroyed it. 
That's what we tend to do is in our good works and in our good efforts, we add things to it. And what we end up doing is we end up destroying it. These guys, these religious teachers, they would take the Old Testament and they would take what you call the Mishnah or the writings of the Jews and they would build this framework. And what they ended up doing was no longer walking with God. They became Pharisees. Contrast here is that when Paul was religious, he was zealous for the traditions of man. Now that Paul has a relationship with God, he's zealous for the gospel. See, God redirected his passions to something better, to the real thing. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by grace. Now, for time's sake, I don't have time to get into this, but if you want to reference, Paul is actually quoting from Jeremiah 1.5 and Isaiah 49.1. So you can write those down in your margins. Isaiah 49.1 and Jeremiah 1.5. He's proving his calling. He's using the same language to show that God called him from his mother's womb. See, the entire point here is that everything done in Paul's life is by God's grace. Everything. The main difference in the argument here that he makes, that any other religion in the world makes, is that the gospel is all from God and given to you. Your calling, your ministry, your life, your salvation. Listen to me, it's all from God. Do you realize that that means that you cannot lose it because you didn't earn it? The only one that can take it away from you is God himself. And in John chapter 6, he promises that he never will. Do you know how freeing that is to understand this? If you add to or if you take away from the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. I'm going to end on this for time's sake. and We'll pick up in verse 16 next week. Listen. If you in any way feel like you contributed to your salvation in any way, you no longer have the salvation of the gospel. If you feel in any way that you have to earn God's affections in any way, you're missing the gospel. If you in any way feel like God is ashamed of you in any way, you don't understand the gospel. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. The salvation that comes through Jesus Christ is free. You can't earn it. You can't accept it. Again, I know this is difficult language, but listen to the language that Paul uses. It's received. It's given. It's a graced gift. Given to you by Jesus. He has loved you since before you were born. He has known you since before you were born. And it doesn't really matter what you've done, good or bad in your life, because of the gospel, God has, and he looks at you like a son or a daughter of the king. Paul wants you to know that if anybody tells you anything different, what they're doing is they're taking away from Jesus' love for you. It's powerful when you understand the gospel. That God, before the foundation of the world, decided to set forth his son. Romans 5a, in the longer version, says, while you were yet a sinner, while you were still in your sins, Christ died for you. Before you did anything good or bad, Jesus died for you. That gospel, that gospel is the gospel that transforms the world. The religious gospel that we tend to acquiesce into only drives people further away. Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are who you said that you are, that you delivered to us that which is of first importance, that Christ raised from the dead. Thank you that we know you and we're known by you, that we have received from Paul through you revelation. Thank you for the example of Paul's life that none of us are too far gone to be known by you. There's nothing we've ever done to make you love you, make you love us any more, and there's nothing we could ever do to make you love us any less. Because it's not dependent on what we do, but on what you've done. So Jesus, help us to never teach another gospel. We confess that not only do we sometimes teach it, but oftentimes we believe it. We believe the lie that we're not good enough. We believe the lie that you're ashamed of us. We believe the lie that we have to earn your affections. And and Father, I pray that you would help us and remind us that you are pleased with us. Help us to receive it, to never achieve it, and to live in your grace. Grace and peace. That's what we need. It's who we want to be. And I pray that you would form that in us. In Jesus' name. This is the first time in my entire life that I've ever finished on time for anything. Here's my promise. I will always finish on time, but I need you to get here on time. You robbed me of five minutes. <laughs> um, we know the parking lot is a problem. We're going to block off spaces next week, so you'll have those. Uh, I hope this was helpful. hope you learned something. You know, I love doing this and I love you guys and I pray that this is a joy for you. I pray that you walk away from here loving God more. So if you can do your best to get here on time, we'll have childcare available 10 minutes prior, ready to go. So you can drop off at 620. We're going to start promptly next Wednesday at 630, okay? Hey, City Church, you are safe. Have a great day.